If you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, and where we will be for the foreseeable future. <laughs> I would not venture to tell you how long we will be in the Gospel of John. All I know is that this is the first Sunday in a new sermon series in this uh, wonderful book. As you get to the Gospel of John, um, chapter 20 might be the best place to land as we try to look at an overview of the, the whole book, um, though we'll also be looking back at the first five verses uh, in chapter 1. Why do people write books? What is their motivation for writing a book? What is their, their goal in doing so? You might think about someone who would write a, a novel, and they could write a novel just to entertain people. They like telling stories. They have a story that they think will make the reader feel a certain way, and so they write that story. Some stories make us cry. Some stories uh, bring a smile to our face. Some stories make my kids laugh out loud. Uh, at various moments in their lives, I think a good chunk of my kids have read uh, the Dogman series. And in fact, I see a Dogman book in Judah's hand right now. And Dave, Dave Pilkey, that's how I think you say his name, wrote that book because he wants you to laugh. That's why he wrote that book. That was his motivation, I think. Uh, some books could be a little different. They might be instructive. They could be like a self-help book or a, a book about organization. Or you could even think about a cookbook, which an author writes because they believe they've, had, they've made some great food in their life and they want you to experience that. And so they write a cookbook with step-by-step -step instructions for how you can do the same thing. Uh, another person might, might write a memoir. And while they're writing to help others process their own life, if you ask them why they wrote that memoir, they might say, you know what? I wrote it for myself. I wrote it so that I could, it could help me remember where I've come from and, and help me understand why I am who I am right now. And so today, as we begin this new sermon series in the Gospel according uh, to John, we are coming to a book. And it's a familiar book to many of us. We know well a lot of the stories within it and a lot of the narratives, the, those about Nicodemus or the woman at the well or the raising of Lazarus, not to mention the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We also have verses of John memorized. Uh, most of us probably know John 3.16 or maybe John 14.6 by heart. But what we can sometimes miss as we think about uh, a book that we're familiar with and the individual stories of it and specific verses in that book is the fact that this whole book, the book as a whole, was written for a purpose, a very specific purpose. The Bible, unlike most other books, is something where we pull things out of it. Uh, you hear references to a, a chapter and a verse, and we look at that, and sometimes we don't think about it in the context of the vision and the purpose of this entire book. And so I think it's wise for us to ask, especially here at the beginning of this sermon series, why was this book written? Is it simply for entertainment, like a novel? Is it supposed to be some kind of a self-help book? Is there a recipe in here for some sort of successful life? Or did John write it just for himself? Did he write it so that he could understand who Jesus was? Here's the great thing about John's gospel, is that we don't have to guess as to what his motivation and purpose in writing this book were, because he tells us in John chapter 20, 
verses 30 through 31, very clearly. This is what he says there. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write this gospel? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're going to drill down deeper into that purpose statement that's, that's written and stated here in John chapter 20. But before we do that, let's pause and just think about John himself, the, the one who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this book near the end of the first century. The book is clearly titled, The Gospel According to John, though that it would be written because of tradition. And there's plenty of debate, debate about just who wrote this this gospel of John? Was it, this, was it John or was it someone else? I don't know that it's particularly helpful for us to go into all these discussions right now, but I do think there's value in those. Uh, what I think would be helpful for us is to think about and, and to focus on how the book itself presents its author. We're studying this book inspired by the Holy Spirit. How does it understand John? And the key word that's attached to the author is a key word that's found throughout this gospel, and it's the word witness. Witness. John, at his core, was a witness. Of course, you know what a witness is. A witness is someone who has seen something and then explains or describes it to others. We might think about someone who is a witness in court, who has seen something and gives a description of what happened as they understand it. Which means here that, that the author, whether John the disciple of Jesus or someone else, is claiming to offer eyewitness testimony about who Jesus was and what he did. We see this in the final two verses of the book itself. In, at the end of chapter 21, if you look just one chapter over from where we were, at the end of chapter 21 in verses 24 and 25, John writes this, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a great way to end the Gospel of John. But what's John saying here? In essence, he's saying there are endless stories about Jesus. But these ones, the ones right here, the ones that I have written down for you, these are the ones that I saw. And this is my testimony. This is my statement and my account about just who Jesus was and what he did. Isn't that amazing to think about? An eyewitness to who Jesus was? And with that in mind, we might think about, uh, about chapter 1. And it's likely that, uh, that John is, in fact, the unnamed disciple in chapter 1, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, along with Andrew, the brother, the brother of Simon Peter, and who then started following Jesus. And I find it... I find it compelling to say that the author of this book is John, the son of Zebedee, the disciple of Jesus. Because that would mean that John is beginning uh, his record of the life of Jesus with where it all began for him. He's beginning with the moment that he first saw Jesus. He opens with the moment that he first followed Jesus, that he first became a witness to his life and then continues to tell that story of his eyewitness experience. John doesn't really actually show up explicitly very often in the story after that uh, moment in chapter 1 where we presume it's, it's him. 
but it's, it's likely that he's identified by this phrase, the disciple who Jesus loved. That's how he identifies himself in the gospel. It shows up in chapter 13 and is repeated a few times in the closing chapters. John's identity as an eyewitness is also on full display in John chapter 19, verses 33 through 35, during his account of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. This is in part what what John writes. Listen to these words. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then we get this comment in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The the he mentioned here is John, who saw these things with his own eyes, wrote them down so that we might believe. And he says, to anyone who wonders about who Jesus was or, or what he did or who wishes that they could have, have been there and when Jesus walked the earth, John says, I was there. I wrote all this down because I saw it with my own eyes and I wrote it down for you. And then in the next chapter, John reiterates that purpose for this written account of his eyewitness testimony. Again, John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Again, all of this internal evidence seems to point us to John the Apostle, the one who was the disciple of Jesus, who was deeply loved by Jesus, and who had a front row seat to the life and ministry of the Christ. To that end, I I start to wonder, and I think, I wonder how many people actually did see Jesus with their physical eyes. If you could have a record of every person that witnessed Jesus, I wonder how many, uh, what that number would look like. I wonder how many people heard him teach. I wonder how many people were healed by him. How many people had a conversation with him like Nicodemus or the woman at the well did? How many people were embraced by him? How many people ate a meal with him? John was one of them. And John is is writing to us because besides being physically healed, at least that we know of, he experienced and witnessed all of those things that we just mentioned. He was with Jesus as one of the first disciples. He was, he was with Jesus when he died. He ate fish on a beach with Jesus after he rose from the dead. John was there, and he has told us all of these things so that we too might know who Jesus is. This is eyewitness testimony. But it's not a book report, and it's not a biography. It's a gospel He's not giving us information on a historical figure so that we can pass a test or impress people with our knowledge. John is writing because he is convinced. He is convinced that understanding who Jesus was and believing in him can change your life and can change my life. He wrote these 21 chapters so that we might come to know who Jesus is and so that we might believe in him and find life. It could seem strange that John spells out his purpose for writing at the end of the gospel rather than the beginning, which is where we would tell people why we are writing the gospel, but we can actually see hints at his purpose in the first words. If you look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's interesting that here we find before John gives us his eyewitness testimony, he takes us into a time when there were no witnesses other than God himself as to what was happening. We're ushered into eternity past because if we're going to understand Jesus and if we're going to find life in him, then we need to recognize that his greatness began before time itself began. Because Jesus can change our life because he's the the giver of life. He can scatter our darkness because he's the creator of all light. Taking John 1, 1 through 5 together with John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, we begin to see just why John wrote his gospel. He's calling out to all people who will listen, and this is what he's saying. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. And that's the summary for John's gospel that I'd like to offer, uh, not only for this sermon, but for our entire series. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. So am I saying that the whole book of John can be summarized in those eight words? Yes. Maybe. (laughs) The reason, though, that we can summarize such a vast and intricate book with such a simple sentence is that every one of those simple words expands into volumes of information. Maybe you could envision a website. You get to that website, and all that's on that website is this little eight-word sentence. Believe in Jesus and find life in him. But then you find that all of those words are actually hyperlinks that you can click on, and each of those words takes you to countless other pages that explains what we mean by Jesus. It explains what we mean by believe. It explains what we mean by life, because those are deep and intricate concepts that John is going to work out for us. And so that's how we can summarize, because each of those words is packed with meaning. In fact, as we meditate on this big idea briefly today, let's start with with Jesus, and let's start with this question. Who is Jesus? That could be our first point today, as in this summary sermon over the entire book. Who is Jesus? Because answering that question is at the heart of John's purpose. That's the purpose of almost all the Gospels, is to help us know who Jesus was and is. So who is Jesus? John wants us to believe in Jesus, but before we can believe in him, we need to know who he is. In John chapter 20, verse 31, remember he highlights two answers to the question of who Jesus is. He is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. That's what John wants us to understand. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. The Christ refers to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one in the Old Testament who would come and rescue his people as well as the entire world. Of course, not everyone accepted Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, those who seem to be most well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures seem to be the ones who most quickly dismissed him as the Messiah. But what John shows us through the gospel is that they were rejecting Jesus in large part because he did not fit the image of who they expected the Messiah to be. If you read our Fellowship of the Word last Saturday, we talked about framework and said that there are many people Jesus encounters in John's gospel that were looking at Jesus through the lens of what they expected him to be. And when Jesus was was different from their preconceived idea of him, 
they held on to that framework instead of allowing Jesus to reshape and change that framework. The way Jesus often speaks of it is in terms of heavenly versus earthly wisdom. Think about how Jesus meets Nicodemus and tells him that he needs to be born again. But Nicodemus starts asking how in the world that is possible, to which Jesus responds that in the world, in the purely physical realm, it is not possible. And then later in that same chapter, he speaks of this difference between earthly and heavenly thinking. John 3, 31 through 33 says, he who comes from above is above all, that's Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. As we read through, through John, we're going to hear Jesus continually confront people's earthly thinking about him as the Savior with the heavenly reality and the truth that he is bringing down. And he's going to confront our thinking as well. The Pharisees and the various individuals Jesus meets in the Gospel of John are not the only ones who think they have Jesus figured out only to realize they do not. We too, we too have been shaped by our culture or, or maybe our religious upbringing or maybe popular Christianity, and we assume things about Jesus that aren't true. And so we should open the eyes of our hearts and ask God here at the very beginning of our study to instruct us. We need to be ready to let Jesus instruct us and correct our thinking about who he is. When John 20, we're told not only to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but also that he is the Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus doesn't shy away from saying that he is the Son of God, he, but he primarily takes on this identity by saying not that he's the Son of God, but that God is his Father, which is an idea that his hearers struggled with and that they were often enraged by, and not just his hearers then, but also hearers today. The identity of Jesus as God himself is one, if not the key distinguishing characteristics of the Christian faith. It's what separates us from other faiths that believe in one God, other monotheistic religions. We are different because of who we believe Jesus to be, that he is God. And it's also what makes us different and distinct from the many cults that have sprung out of Christianity. And John's gospel is, in fact, a key place to find clear evidence that Jesus was the Son of God and therefore God himself. In fact, that's what John opens with, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the clearest statements about the deity of Jesus. The Word here, as we will see, refers to Jesus, and Jesus takes up his identity as the Son of God, often referring to God as his Father, much to the annoyance of the Pharisees. This is so important, in fact, that one commentator I read breaks down the entire gospel around this theme of Jesus as the Son of the Father. This is what he writes. In chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus makes an astonishing statement. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. This statement summarizes the two halves of the gospel. In part one, chapters one through 10, Jesus describes himself as the Christ and the Son who has come from his Father in heaven to reveal his Father. In part two, chapters 11 through 21, Jesus is described as the Son who is returning to his Father in heaven 
to open up the way to his Father. What an interesting way to think about the whole gospel. Jesus coming to reveal his Father, Jesus going back to his Father to create a way for us to get to the Father. You can think about it that way, but whatever you want to think about, the Father and Jesus being his Son is a key part of this gospel. John is telling us over and over who Jesus is, and if we're going to believe in Jesus, we don't simply need to understand that he is the promised Savior, but also that he is God himself, the Son of the Father sent to bring light and life into our world and to send his Spirit to minister to us and through us. We're going to delve into these depths, especially as they are explained and expounded in chapters 13 through 17, then we are not only going to need God to break up our frameworks, but just expand our minds. A narrow focus cannot encompass these kind of deep truths about God. We need a panoramic, maybe you might even think of a 360 degree view of who Jesus is and what it means that God is a trinity. And John is ready to help us see who Jesus is. To see that, we might ask a second question, which is this. How is Jesus revealed? First question is, who is Jesus? And then we're going to ask, how is Jesus revealed? Specifically in John's gospel, how is Jesus revealed? How do we understand? How do we come to know who Jesus is? I've got four answers to that question, but they kind of intertwine and, and overlap. How is Jesus revealed? First, through witnesses. Through witnesses. Obviously, we've talked about uh, John himself being a witness, but beginning with John the Baptist in chapter 1, and all the way through this book, John brings out eyewitnesses, brings people on the stand to tell about who Jesus was, people who were healed by Jesus, people who were taught by Jesus, people who were confronted by Jesus. And John offers intimate portraits of people like the woman at the well or the man born blind, while also showing ways that an entire wedding uh, party responded to him, or how a crowd of 5,000 people responded to him. But each of these witnesses speaks to us from the past and asks us to open our eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's revealed through witnesses. Secondly, he's revealed through signs. Through signs. It's often said that the book of John contains seven signs which is a number that John seems to, to love. He numbers the first two signs, which are the turning of the water into wine in chapter 2 and healing an official son in chapter 4. He says this is the first sign that Jesus did. This is the second sign that Jesus did. But then he kind of seems to lose his train of thought. He never really talks about the number of signs again. You'll never see him say, this was the third sign or this was the fourth sign. And in fact, if you count them, you can count seven signs or you could count eight. You might even count nine or 10. But whatever the number, it doesn't matter. The point is that Jesus is doing amazing signs, things that people had never seen before. And while those, those signs had immediate effects on the people who experienced them, they also had this wider effect of showing that Jesus truly was the Savior and the Son of God. In the days to come, as we look at these signs, we're going to see the deeper meaning behind each of them. Because while the sign was easy to behold, its, its meaning was hard to discern, which is why often Jesus would perform the sign and then follow it up with these large blocks of teaching. And in fact, that's the third way that Jesus is revealed. It's through his teaching. And John has some amazing blocks of Jesus' teaching. What's interesting about the teaching of Jesus is actually how confrontational it, it is in this gospel. 
In fact, these teaching sections of John are, are what I find hardest to understand in this gospel. Uh, Jesus will speak at length to the crowds. He'll say some difficult things on the surface. Uh, or he'll say difficult things, and on the surface, some things that look very harsh. Some of that has to do with him shaking people out of their earthly way of thinking, shaking us out of our earthly way of thinking. But let's be honest, some of it is just confusing. Some of this is hard to understand, and so we're going to have to work hard to get to the meaning of these teaching blocks. And in the midst of them, one of the key teachings are these seven I am statements. Um, again, you might count more, but we'll stick with seven. Uh, the seven I am statements are part of the teaching, and that's, he says, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 7. I am the door, and I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. And I am the true vine. And while these are deeply comforting and life-giving statements, they are also confrontational. And we're going to need to wrestle with just who Jesus was claiming to be and what it means to follow the one who authoritatively announces those realities about himself. As we look at John's gospel, the final way that I think we see uh, John revealing who Jesus is, is through what we'll call his hour, through his hour. John often shows us that Jesus either would not show his glory publicly, or he would be preserved from some sort of violence from the crowd because, quote, his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, after the triumphal entry, he announces that the hour of his glorification had come. And how was Jesus glorified? He was glorified through his sacrificial death on the cross. When we read in John 1.5 that in coming to, to dwell among us, Jesus was revealing the Father. We, we see that, that the way that he was most clearly revealing the Father, the greatest revelation of God, was found in the hour that Jesus loved his sheep by willingly laying down his life for them which means we can't understand who Jesus is unless we let the cross take center stage. And John keeps the cross in front of our eyes through this phrase, his hour had not yet come. When we are tempted to forget that Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God came to earth to die for sinners like you and me, John pounds his proverbial pulpit and says one more time, his hour had not yet come. When you take a step back and see these ways that John is revealing Jesus and helping us see that he is the Christ, the Son of God, there's this general uh, pattern, especially in chapters 2 through 12, where there's a sign or a teaching from Jesus that confronts people and then forces them to make a decision about him. John is often pausing and saying, some people said this about Jesus and other people said this about Jesus. And then there were some people that believed in Jesus. Or then in chapters 13 through 21, as he's really focused on his disciples, uh, we see that they are responding to his teaching in different ways. They're responding even to his death and resurrection in different ways. And they also are forced to say just exactly who they think Jesus is. John's not doing that just to show us what other people were doing and how they were responding. In highlighting these moments where the crowd is divided or the disciples are confused, John is placing us in the crowd. He's putting us in the shoes of particular individuals or in the upper room. He's putting us at the empty tomb and he's asking us to make a decision about who, who Jesus is. 
He's placing all of this information before us through witnesses and through signs and through the words of Jesus and through the cross of Christ. And he wants to know if we believe. Do we believe? Which takes us into our next question in this afternoon's flyover of John's Gospel, which is what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? If you read through this book, and this would be a perfectly fine practice, and you highlight the word believe, you're going to use a lot of ink. (laughs) The Greek word for believe is used 99 times in John's Gospel, give or take, which is actually 30 more times than all three other Gospels combined. But that's, in fact, it's actually, there's more happening here because John doesn't just use the word believe when he's talking about believing. He also talks about knowing Jesus or seeing Jesus or receiving Jesus or coming to him or abiding in him or remaining in him, which are all synonyms for believing. And he's also talking about what it means to not believe, that to not believe Jesus is to not receive him or to reject him, or to go away from him, or to deny him. And all of this makes it clear, again, that John is not serving as a witness to the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, simply so that we could have a lot of information about him. He wants us to believe and receive, to come to and to abide in Jesus. He wants us to see the active nature of true saving faith, and he wants us to believe that believe in Jesus as he is revealed, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. This push towards belief in the light of all these witnesses just brought to my mind the, this quote from C.S. Lewis that we all know so well, or, or maybe you, if you haven't heard it before, um, it's such a beautiful quote, and I think that John would resonate with it. This is what Lewis wrote said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think John would would love that statement (laughs) because I think that's what John is doing is he's coming to us and saying, this is who Jesus was and you can't say anything anything else about Jesus other than what he said and you have to not just accept it in your mind, but you must believe it in your heart. Belief in Jesus is what John is aiming for and we will spend time defining just what belief means. What is the nature of true saving faith? But there's also an aim that actually goes beyond belief. Because believing in Jesus does something. It brings life. And so as we come to this final question, uh, this is our final question for this afternoon. What What is the life 
that Jesus offers. It's not belief in Jesus for no purpose. It's belief in Jesus so that we might have life. And what is the life that Jesus offers? We might hear that question, what is the life Jesus offers, and respond by saying something like, well, how can Jesus give us life? We're already alive. To which Jesus would likely say, you're thinking in earthly ways. I'm bringing you heavenly wisdom. And in in fact, we would be denying what we all know to be true in our hearts if we said that question. Because we all know if we're honest that there is, there's more to the, to the meaning of life than simply breathing and having a pulse. As the first verses of John say it, we live in a world that's full of darkness and death, and we know it. And so we need Jesus. Why? Because he is the light of the world. We need him to save us. We need Jesus who is the bread of life, the light of life the giver of abundant life, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, to give us life. We need eternal life, and we need an eternal life that breaks into our present and transforms us right now. All that is what is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus' life here, recorded for us by John. And not only to us, but to everyone else who will hear this call to believe in Jesus and find life in him. I'm excited to begin this journey. And as we do, I think that these four questions that we've mentioned will actually serve as good trail markers for us to keep us on the right path. I think we're going to often find ourselves on a, on a sun, in a Sunday sermon just answering these questions. Who is Jesus? How is he being revealed in this particular passage? What does it mean to believe in him? And what is the life that he is offering to me? And so I'd encourage you to begin or to continue meditating on John's gospel with those things in mind. This week you can focus on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which we will think on in part or maybe even as a whole uh, this coming Sunday. As we move into our moment of silence, though, I, I just want to invite you to ask that God would reveal Jesus to you, or as we read it in, in John chapter 12, to, when the, the, those Greek folks come looking for Jesus and they say, sir, we, we want to see Jesus. Maybe that's a prayer that our hearts can pray, that, that, that God would help you to truly understand who Jesus is, that he would help you to know what it means to believe, and that he would give you eyes to see what it means to have life in Christ's name. And so let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and even prepare our hearts for the coming weeks and months. Father, we want to see Jesus. Even we who know him through faith, we want to, to know him more. We want to understand him more. We want to come to him. We want to find life in him, believe in him more deeply. We want you to break up all of the frameworks and the earthly thinking that we have about him. Would you uh, make our hearts soft to understand who Christ is? 
and understand why he has come into this world. Lord, we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. So help us, Lord, to see where we are not trusting in Christ, where we're not coming to him, where we haven't fully received him in some ways. And Lord, lead us into the belief that brings life into our hearts and our lives. Lord, we will continue to pray for insight, but right now we just pray for this entire sermon series, Lord, that you would lead us to Christ. You would help us to see the life that we can have in him. Lord, thank you for John. Thank you for this brother of ours from centuries before who by the inspiration of your spirit wrote these things down for us. What a miracle. What a a gift that we have that you have given us this written record that we're all holding in our laps of just what Jesus did and who he was. What a miracle, Lord. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us in the words of the author of Hebrews to not neglect this great salvation that has been revealed to us Lord, help us not to neglect it in our own lives, but also not to neglect it in the lives of those that we know and love. Lord, would you use this series to spark in us a a fervor to share the beauty of the gospel with others, to call others to believe in Jesus, Lord, that we would see the greatness of our salvation, that we would long for others to know the life and the light that is found in Christ alone. We would tell others, believe in Jesus and find life in him. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your spirit that guides us into truth. Thank you for sending your son to save us. We pray this all in his name. Amen.